morning. I was supposed to preach this message last week, and uh, John Curian was supposed to lead the service. So basically, I, all of my application is just what I thought John Curian needed to hear, because I figured it would just be me and him. So, uh, so if, it, if it starts to sound like it doesn't apply to you, that's probably why. <clears throat> the gospel of Jesus Christ, the message of Christianity, is in one sense very simple, and in another sense, it's very complex. I think this should encourage us in two ways. On the one hand, the simplicity of the gospel should encourage you because you don't have to be a rocket scientist or a brain surgeon to understand the gospel. You can be a little kid and understand the gospel. Christ died for your sins, and he rose from the dead, rose from the dead to give you life if you believe in him, right? That's the gospel. You can, be, you can be a little kid and understand the gospel. You don't have to go to seminary or be a Bible scholar to understand the gospel. If someone asked you, why are you a Christian? You could say, because Christ died for my sins and rose from the dead to give me eternal life, right? That's the message of the gospel. It's simple. On the other hand, the complexity of the gospel should encourage you because there's always more ways to learn and grow in our understanding of who Jesus is and what he came to do and how we should respond to him. So the gospel is not like my Pandora playlist, which I'm starting to realize that I just keep hearing the same songs over and over and over and over again. And I, I'm frankly getting sick of it, right? I, I need a new playlist. I need someone to give me a new CD. I don't know what I need, um, but I'm getting, I'm getting sick of listening to that playlist. <clears throat> we never need a new playlist with the gospel. There's always a new song on the horizon. There's always undiscovered territory to explore. There's always room to grow personally in our application and our living out of the gospel. So today we begin walking our way through the gospel according to Mark. And here Mark has explained for us the good news, not in one sentence like I just did, but in 16 chapters. In other words, today we're going to start seeing the complexity of the gospel starting at the beginning. And I, I just wanted to say this, um, <clears throat> as, I, as I studied this text and work on, worked on it, I realize that this is, it's a pretty complex text, especially because Mark is quoting from the Old Testament. So I've worked really hard to try to state these things simply, but I still feel like this is going to be a content-heavy sermon. So I would ask you guys as listeners now to work hard to, uh, to pay attention and, and listen um, to what this text has to say to us today. Now, beginnings are important because they're foundational, right? <clears throat> Your first conversation with someone can set the trajectory of a relationship. The first year of an organization can establish the DNA of that company. So where does the gospel begin? Well, here in Mark 1, 1 to 8, we see that the good news of Jesus Christ begins with God's promise, with God's command, and with God's power. The good news of Jesus Christ begins with God's promise, with his command, and with his power. 
So my first point today is that the good news, the gospel, begins with God's promise. And I see this in the first three verses. I'll read them again. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So hundreds of years before Jesus was born, God made promises to Israel through her prophets. Specifically, God promised that he would send a prophet preacher to prepare the way for God's coming to his people. A messenger, do you see that in verse 2? A messenger who will prepare the way. Or the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. The good news of Jesus Christ begins with this promise of God. <coughs> now, if you look at in the footnotes of your Bible or in the marginal notes of your Bible, you'll see that Mark is actually quoting from two prophets here. Uh, verse 2 is quoting from Malachi, and verse 3 is quoting from the prophet Isaiah. Now, Malachi prophesied late in Israel's history, after they had returned to Jerusalem from their exile and rebuilt a second temple. It's a short prophecy. You could read it this afternoon in just a few minutes. It's a short prophecy, and it confronts the religious hypocrisy of God's people acting like they were obeying the law of God when they really were not. And in Malachi, God promises that one day he will come and purify his people. Listen to what Malachi says. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi, that is the priests. And they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Now famously, Malachi follows this up by saying that the messenger whom the Lord will send will be Elijah the prophet. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, Elijah was perhaps the most well-known prophet in Israel's history. He lived at one of the darkest periods of her history, and he called people to turn away from their sins and their idol worship and to worship the Lord, the true God. Elijah is also famous for something else. Maybe you know this. He's famous for never having died, right, but for having been taken up to God. And this is probably why he's used here in Malachi as a figure who would then reappear at the end of history before God comes to his temple. This is why John the Baptist's clothing is described in verse 6. Did you notice that? So in Mark 1.6 it says, Now John was clothed with camel's hair, and he wore a leather belt around his waist. This is the outfit that Elijah the prophet was famous for. John the Baptist here is, in a sense, wearing an Elijah costume. 
Now, it's not Halloween, all right? Um, and it's not a parody or a copycat or the action of an admirer. No, John wore the outfit of Elijah to make a statement and to make the statement <clears throat> that he was the prophet who had been sent to prepare the way for the Lord to arrive at his temple. John was saying with his clothes that the ancient promises of God were starting to be fulfilled. Notice as well where John appears, right? In verse 4, John appears in the wilderness. He appeared baptizing in the wilderness. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah. Look at verse 3. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now, you would think from Malachi that John might appear in the city, in Jerusalem, right? Especially at the temple of the Lord. Maybe he would, he would stand at the entrance of the temple and tell the people passing by <clears throat> that God will come soon. I mean, if you want to start something significant, you've got to go to the center of the action, right? You've got to go into the city. But John surprisingly appeared in the wilderness. He, he appeared in the middle of nowhere. Why? He was fulfilling Isaiah's prophecy. God would not only send a prophet to prepare the way, like Elijah, but a preacher, a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, Isaiah, Isaiah had prophesied years before Malachi, before Israel had gone into exile. And he warned of the coming doom of God's judgment. But he also comforted Israel and Jerusalem that God's judgment was not his final word for them. God would save Jerusalem and forgive Israel's sins. You see, in Isaiah we see the lowest lows of God's judgment and the highest highs of his salvation. And both of these are found in this imagery of the wilderness. If you remember my sermon on Isaiah 35 last summer, and I'm sure you all do, right? <laughs> um, you remember uh, that in the Bible, the wilderness or the desert is often associated with God's judgment. Think of Israel's 40 years of wandering in the desert and the death of an entire generation after the Exodus. Think of the destruction of Jerusalem and the march of the exiles through the desert to Babylon. The wilderness is an image for God's judgment of Israel. But also it became an image for the place where God's promises to bring renewal and blessing and salvation would be. So in Isaiah 35 it says, The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad, the desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. Or in Isaiah 44, God says, I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. And here's a key point that will come up later. 
I will pour my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. You see, the wilderness was actually the place where Israel should hope for a new beginning. It was the place they should expect the return of the Lord. And and let me say here as a side note that God often works this way in the Bible and from my experience in life as well. So maybe right now you're at the lowest low. Maybe you're in the wilderness, so to speak. Be encouraged, if that's you, be encouraged that this is the place where God likes to work. The wilderness is the place where we should expect God's answer to our prayers because the wilderness is the place where God has promised renewal. But a little more concretely here, the wilderness was the place God promised to prepare a way for the Lord to return to Jerusalem. A highway. Look in verse 3, a path, right? A direct path for God to come back to Jerusalem. The verse after this quotation of Isaiah, here back in Isaiah, says this, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill made low. Very famous verses, right? The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. All obstacles will be cleared out of the way. And here is the key point. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This preacher, this voice in the wilderness, would prepare the way for the glory of the Lord to be revealed. And this was the promise of God, right? The mouth of the Lord had spoken it. So what's the point here? I want you to see that Mark is subtly but clearly telling us that when Jesus came, God came to his people in fulfillment of his ancient promises. Did you notice the title, The Lord, here? Prepare the way for the Lord. Make his path straight. This word is a translation in Isaiah of the Hebrew word Yahweh or Jehovah, which you may know as the name of God. Mark is saying here that Jesus was Yahweh come to his people. And John prepared in fulfillment of these ancient promises. The beginning of the gospel should encourage us that God's word is true. That God always keeps his word. In this way, God is very unlike us, isn't he? We make many promises that we don't keep. I told a Jay this morning, I'll be here early so I can pass one part of my sermon by you and make sure it's okay. I didn't get here early, all right? So it'll be interesting to see what he thinks about that part of my sermon, all right? We make many promises that we don't keep. I mean, today is the last day of January. How many of you made a New Year's resolution? How many of you followed through with it, right? People notoriously don't follow through on the things they say they will do. But God always keeps his word. In this way, God is unlike us. Sometimes, 
sometimes God fulfills his promises immediately. I, I, in, I can think of that in a period of my life. I faced a tremendous difficulty. And through that, I latched on to this psalm in the book of Psalms. And I memorized it, and I prayed it all the time. I prayed it morning, noon, and night. The funny thing is, I don't remember which psalm it was now. I tried to look for it this morning, and I couldn't find it, you know, because it's, it's just been a couple years, you know. Um, but I, I, at that point in my life, I, I prayed, I, I prayed, God, would you fulfill this promise? Would you fulfill this promise? And almost immediately, within a matter of months, God answered my prayers in, in, in surprising and, and almost miraculous ways. Sometimes... God fulfills his promises immediately. But often, often, God takes a long time to fulfill the promises of his word. That's the case with these prophecies, right? They were made hundreds of years before Jesus came. Now, if these prophecies were simply the promises of men, of Malachi and Isaiah, then maybe their contemporaries would say, well, they're wrong right? Because they didn't come to pass. Or, or if these prophecies were simply the words of men, then maybe we would say, as many biblical scholars do, that Mark is merely taking these ancient texts and kind of reappropriating them to fit the story of Jesus. But biblical scholars, unfortunately, often forget, or perhaps they've never learned, that the Bible is God's word, and he is eternal. He often takes a long time to fulfill his promises, but he always fulfills them as he said he would. Sometimes we look at God's word, at what it says, and then we look at the world around us, <clears throat> and we think the two don't match up. It's like they're two different worlds. I want you to see here that this is not because God has lied to us. It's because the world has lied to us. God often takes a long, long time to keep the promises of his word. Sometimes, sometimes when he quietly fulfills them, we almost forgot that he made them. But this beginning of the gospel should encourage us that God always keeps his word. He, he does what he say, says he will do. We can trust his word, in other words. Of course, in order to trust his word, we have to know what his promises are, right? So let me encourage you, if you've never read through the Old Testament, this year's the year to do it. Tomorrow's February, right? You can make a, a new month's resolution, all right? Seriously, if, if you've never read the Old Testament, read, maybe read through the Old Testament this year. If you don't even know where to start on that, talk to Pastor Benu. He can, he's got a couple of apps and some other fancy technical stuff that will help you that I don't really understand, um, but might be helpful to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ really begins in the Old Testament, right? It begins with God's promise, all right? That's my first point. But <clears throat> the, God, the good news not only begins with God's promise, all right? Moving to my second point here. It also begins with his command. It begins with his command, namely the command to repent. And I see this in verses 4 and 5. So look at those with me. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem 
were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now, baptism was obviously central to John's work, right? I mean, he's called John the Baptist, for goodness sake, right? Um, John was baptizing, verse 4. He was preaching a baptism, um, and they were all going out and being baptized, right? John is famous for his baptizing. But sometimes we miss that John's baptism was accompanied by preaching, right? Um, he, He gave a word that explained what his baptism was all about. As verse 4 says, John was proclaiming, he was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That means that John was telling people to repent and be baptized as a symbol or a sign of their repentance. Notice in verse 5 that the people who are being baptized by John are confessing their sins, right? They're repenting as they're being baptized. What is repentance? Repentance is an acknowledgement of sin and a turning away from it. Right? Repentance is it's an, an open acknowledgement that I'm a sinner and a commitment to turn away from it. It's the honest confession of who we are as sinful people and the commitment to turn away from our sin and obey God. Notice that calling people to repent is really how John prepared the way, right? How did he prepare the way for the Lord? He called people to repent. Perhaps you wonder why the church is so hung up on sin. Why do Christians worry so much about sin? Why why won't they stop worrying about this ancient book and what it says, for example, about sexuality? It's not fundamentally because the church is prudish or because Christians think they're better than other people. Sometimes, admittedly, as sinful people, we Christians are often guilty of this kind of self-righteousness. But that's not the reason that the church cares about sin. The reason that the church cares about sin and repentance is because this is the first step to meeting and knowing God. Acknowledging and turning away from your sin is the first step to meeting and knowing God in Jesus Christ. You know, the the people of Judah and Jerusalem had it right. They, in verse 5, tells us they went out to John and they were being baptized by him, confessing their sins. See, our sin is the reason there's a barrier between us and God. We have not loved God and obeyed him as we should. We have not loved our neighbor as we should. Sometimes our sin is covered up and obscured by our religious hypocrisy, like it was in Malachi's day. We act like we're obeying God, but deep down we refuse to acknowledge and turn away from our sins. If this is you, I want you to notice something about this text. John did not go and call the Gentiles to this baptism of repentance. He didn't go and call all the other people to this baptism of repentance. He went to Judea and Jerusalem, to the very people of God, and called them to repent and be baptized. I think this teaches us that repentance is not merely for those outside of the people of God. It's first and foremost for those 
inside the people of God, right? It's how we begin the Christian life, and it's how we continue the Christian life. In our culture, maybe, though, religious hypocrisy is a rarer phenomenon, I would think. We, you know, if you don't want to go to church, you just don't go to church, right? Um, we value authenticity, right? <clears throat> but sometimes what is, called, what is often called authenticity in our culture is simply the wearing of another kind of mask. It's, it's a hypocrisy that says, it's okay for me to be my sinful self. And the truth is, it's really not. If someone tells you, if someone tells you, it's okay for you to be your sinful self, you should hear the hiss of the serpent, the deceiver behind that statement. True authenticity, this is true authenticity. True authenticity is when a sinful person confesses who they really are, a creature of God who has rebelled against him and needs salvation. Sometimes, our, our emphasis on grace in the church can lead us to ignore repentance. We, we can say to ourselves, it's okay if I sin because God will forgive me. Once again, I think we should hear the hiss of the serpent behind that statement. The Bible is crystal clear that if you give yourself over to sin, you will face the judgment of God. God commands repentance. But here's the good news in this passage, right? This is the gospel after all. God not only commands repentance, he promises to forgive repentant sinners. God promises to forgive repentant sinners. Did you see that in verse 4? John proclaimed a baptism of repentance for what? For the forgiveness of sins. You see, <clears throat> the beginning of, of the gospel here teaches us this good news in a nutshell. That through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God forgives repentant sinners. Maybe you think, God will never forgive me for what I've done. Have you, ever, have you ever been overwhelmed by your sin? I have. If that's you this morning, I want you to know that God's ways are not our ways. We do not easily or quickly forgive each other. But when a repentant sinner calls on God, on the Lord, God never holds a grudge. He's not slow to forgive. Through Jesus Christ, he immediately and abundantly pardons repentant sinners. He forgives all of our sins. In fact, that's what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes the washing away of all of our sins. Now, baptism itself does not wash away our sins. I think John even lets us know that in verse 8. He says, I've only baptized you with water. Right? I think he's recognizing that it doesn't, baptism isn't the real thing, right? It's a symbol of the real thing. But baptism's not a magic ritual. It, it's sometimes treated this way in Roman Catholic theology, that it somehow automatically washes away original sin and gives people the Holy Spirit. But, but that's not the way the Bible speaks of baptism. No, this passage teaches us that baptism always goes along with the confession of sin, right? It always goes along with repentance. 
And that's the reason, by the way, that at Seven Mile Road Church, we, we don't baptize babies, right? Because babies can't repent. Baptism is a symbol for those who are repentant. Now, we do recognize that other faithful Christians disagree with us on the question of infant baptism. But no matter where you are on that issue, I think we can all agree on one thing from this text, and that is that the gospel teaches us that God washes away the sins of repentant sinners, right? Baptism is a symbol of that. So the gospel begins here with a command, uh, the command to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. So let me just ask before we move to the third point, have you done that? Have you confessed your sins? All right? Have you, not, not necessarily to others, there's a place for that, but to God, right? If you haven't, why not? Why would you stay in your sins when God promises that he'll forgive you if you repent? Now, if you are a Christian, if you have confessed your sins, but you haven't been baptized, let me encourage you to talk to Pastor Ajay or Pastor Bindu about baptism. All Christians should be baptized, right? It's a sign, it shows people that we've repented of our sins and identified with Jesus Christ. And I mean, frankly, it's really the easiest thing Jesus ever asks us to do, right? So um, be baptized if you're a Christian. Okay, uh, there it is. Well, <clears throat> finally, one more point in this passage. And this third point is going to teach us that baptism is, is only, act, or excuse me, baptism, that repentance is only actually preparation, all right? This is one thing, one way or area we get confused. Re repentance is not salvation itself, right? So, so, so <clears throat> John did not come and, and ask people to just muster up enough willpower to finally stop sinning. Just stop it, you know? That's not what John's saying, right? Repentance is just preparation. And the third thing we see today is that the good news of Jesus Christ begins actually with the power of God. It begins with the power of God, namely that Jesus will immerse his people in the Holy Spirit. I see this in verses 7 and 8. So look, look there with me if you would. And he preached saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> In these verses, we're reminded, aren't we, that Mark is not a story about John the Baptist. No, the good news is a story about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John says that Jesus is He's mightier or stronger than he is. John says he's not even worthy to untie Jesus' shoelaces, right? Is this hyperbolic language? I mean, is John the Baptist just one of those good guys who is self-effacing and wouldn't recognize his own significance? No. Jesus Christ really is that much greater than John the Baptist. Compared with Jesus, John the Baptist was nothing, right? He was just the prophet preacher sent to prepare the way for the Lord. What makes Jesus so much stronger than John? We could answer this question in many ways, but we learn a good answer to this question in verse 8. 
I have baptized you with water, John said, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Once again, we learn that baptism in water is merely a symbol of the real baptism. The, the water in baptism symbolizes the washing away of our sins. But how are our sins really washed away? Through Jesus, who baptizes his people with the Holy Spirit. Now, this idea of Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit always confused me when I started reading the Bible. What could that possibly mean? I think to understand this, we have to again consider what God promised in the prophets to his people. There we find that God promised he would one day pour out his spirit on his people. You know, earlier, remember that text we listened to in Isaiah? I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. In particular, God promised that the Spirit of God would bring the presence of God and the power of God to obey the law. The Spirit of God would bring the presence of God and the power of God to obey the law. Only one more text from the Old Testament I'm going to read you. It's from Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel it says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my laws and you shall be my people and I will be your God. You can hear in this prophecy how the spirit brings God's presence. You shall be my people and I will be your God. And how the spirit brings God's power. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. When Jesus came, he fulfilled this promise of God. He died on the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead. He ascended to the right hand of God. And he poured out his spirit on his people. Another way to say this is he baptized or he immersed his people in the Holy Spirit. Right? That's why Christians say that we have the spirit of God living inside of us. Through Jesus, God dwells with us and he gives us power to obey him. Notice that this is something that Jesus does for all of his people. Some charismatic Christians say that the baptism of the Spirit is a second experience that not all Christians experience and that you have to seek out. But that's not what scripture teaches. All Christians, by definition, have been given the Spirit. They've been baptized with the Spirit through Jesus. They've been filled with the Spirit. This is what Jesus did for his people. And this is why he's so much more powerful than John. You see, John's baptism was kind of like a little kid with a plastic lawnmower helping his dad cut the lawn, all right? <clears throat> Not every analogy is perfect, okay? <laughs> but there's a point. Right? The kid steps out of the garage, he, runs over, he takes his little plastic lawnmower and he runs it over the lawn, foreshadowing what's going to take place. But does his lawnmower cut any of the grass? No. Right? What cuts the grass is when his dad fills up that real lawnmower with gas and pulls the cord and starts the engine and mows down the lawn. 
You see, the Holy Spirit is the real power of God to cleanse us from our sins. And if you are a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of you, giving you access to the very presence of God and the ability to really, really turn away from your sin. I mean, what would it mean if we remembered that Jesus baptized us with the Holy Spirit this week? Perhaps we could pray with more confidence that God would help us fight our sin. Perhaps we could encourage each other more as we meet together in, in groups and soul care that God has really given us the ability to turn away from our sin. Not perfectly. Christians will fight sin until the resurrection, right? Until it's all said and done. But really, right? Really. Perhaps we could trust Jesus more to, to <clears throat> by the Spirit, help us speak the gospel to others when they ask us what, why we are a Christian. We should conclude. As we start to work our way through the gospel according to Mark, let's remember how it begins. Here's the beginning, right? It begins with God's promise. It begins with God's command. And it begins with God's power. God promised to send a prophet preacher in the wilderness to prepare the way for his coming. And he was true to his word. John appeared in the wilderness. He commanded us to repent of our sins. And he told us that one much stronger would come after him. Jesus Christ, who gives his people the Spirit of God and washes away all of our sins. Let's pray together. Father, 